0: 411 Live. Where well, you
1: can learn about issues that affect us every day. Stay the world. 411
0: Live. Real people, real talk.
1: Made to help people in our community in every way. For your
2: 411 Live. At the beginning of each new year, I always hear someone say, I can't believe we're already into a new year. Last year went by so fast. Well, a new year is always a good time to look back at the year that's gone by. So that's exactly what we're going to do. Hello, I'm Beverly Taylor, and this is the 411 Live Real People, Real Talk. Before I dive into the top 10 411 Live episodes of last year, I want to thank you. Thank you for listening and watching us through 2023. We appreciate you. And I especially appreciate the words of encouragement I've received from many of you. Now let's get to the top 10 episodes of 2023. Number 10 is called Empowering Futures, Northwestern Mutual's HBCU Connection Scholarship. Now there is a real need to cultivate the talent pool in Milwaukee. The potential impact it can have on this city is enormous. Northwestern Mutual Scholarship Program aims to assist students who plan to continue their education at an accredited historically black college or university or HBCU and address social and racial disparities faced by young people in Milwaukee. I talked to Steve Ratke, president of Northwestern Mutual Foundation and DeEssence Johnson, a scholarship recipient attending Miles College in Alabama.
3: Milwaukee has been Northwestern Mutual's home for over one hundred and sixty five years, and we are huge advocates for the advancement of our city and we think core to that belief is that every child in the city deserves a quality education right and we know that getting that good education and going away to college can be hard for everyone, uh, but can be particularly challenging for first-generation college students, for students from families with limited financial resources, for students of color, right? So we are really trying to lean in and we want to hope that one day all of this, the students of the city can take their learnings and the educational foundations that they have and come back and contribute to Milwaukee as leaders in the city uh, or even Northwest, Northwestern Mutual employees. So uh, the HBCU scholarship is part of a, a new experiment we're doing as part of our, our overall education strategy, uh, where we felt it's important to, you know, help students who, who want to go outside of the Milwaukee area and, you know, take advantage of the excellent opportunity they can get at HBCUs, but still you know, may want to come back to Milwaukee someday where they have their their families and their relationships. And, you know, if we can support them and kind of stay in touch with them as is is they're on that journey and be at their side, uh, it was just a great way that we can contribute to the journeys that they're on.
2: Very good. The essence, was it important to you to go to an HBCU? Just f- I should say HBCU, historically black college and university. Um Was it important to go to an HBCU?
4: Yes, I really wanted to go to an HBCU because I wanted to be around the like-minded people who are striving for one goal. I feel like during high school and middle school, everybody was forced to go to school, but everybody here wants to go to school. And it's nice to be at a place that is made for us, by us, where excellence is expected and not surprising.
2: Coming in the number nine spot is Clean Slate MKE, providing second chances through pardons and expungements in Wisconsin. During this eye-opening podcast, we hear stories of transformation, when people are able to rebuild their lives once they are free from the constraints of criminal records for low-level offenses. And Sheniel McLeod, founder of clean slate mke shares her personal story that led her to help others i really like this podcast because it has the potential of giving people who did not know the expungement process existed for them real hope now this program is to help people with convictions of low-level offenses get expungements correct that's one of the goals that's correct
5: where did that come from Wow, so that came from my own personal experience in needing an expungement. I have been in corporate my whole life, and an unfortunate event of my own landed me with a conviction that I had to learn to get rid of because I had lost my job at NML. I was working in corporate, like I said, my whole life, and it was a life I couldn't go back to. You can't go back to because of this because record. of this record, and so um, because you know once I found out what expungement was, I've, I seen it as an opportunity to get what I thought my, was my life back, mm-hmm. and in return it, it gave me a whole new life because it's, it put me in place to serve other people and help other people with getting a second chance and getting a fresh start, even if it meant I couldn't.
2: Yeah. Yeah. How do you help the youth of Milwaukee who are struggling with life, especially when that struggle includes some very bad choices? Well, there are solutions. In the eighth episode of our top 10 list, we talk about some. We call it Spread of Violence, Understanding Violence as a Communicable Disease. My guest, David Muhammad, Deputy Director of the Milwaukee County Department of Health and Human Services and I delve into the causes and consequences of violent behavior and examine the ways in which it can be prevented. You know, when you talk about, you know, you're with health and human services, you were with violence prevention, Mm -hmm. it kind of connects, doesn't it?
6: I I would agree. Yeah, absolutely.
2: I think you have called it uh, violence a communicable disease. Absolutely. Tell me about that.
6: Sure. Well, you know, from a public health perspective, violence is a psychosocial disease. It's, it's um, you know, in the most common sense, people just say hurt people hurt people. Mm-hmm. And so, <clears throat> you know, many people might be familiar with the concept of trauma and trauma being something that is either transformed or transferred. And so when we look at cycles of violence in our community, oftentimes the first exposure is in the home or in our neighborhoods or in schools. And we learn to use violence as a normal way to resolve conflict. And so when we talk about it from the lens of Milwaukee and looking at neighborhoods and communities, when we see disinvestment in a neighborhood, when we see institutions in those neighborhoods that are going away, taken away, or are under-resourced, you start to see community life break up. When you see families under great economic and social pressure, you see that acted out in ways that express anger and frustration or... Um, even in, in many respects, self, self-treatment. We can look at drugs as a form of self-prescribing, whether that's alcohol or other types of hard drugs. Mm-hmm. And people are coping in various ways that can be self-destructive. And so when people express that frustration in unregulated emotional ways, it can erupt in violence. So all violence is really a retaliatory response to feeling unheard disconnected, unloved, disrespected, or vulnerable. And when you put it in that context, whatever means or methods people have, whether it's a gun, whether it's a hand, whether it's abusive language, all of that can take on the form of violence. But it all comes from a level of violence which is disinvesting in neighborhoods and communities and destroying families.
2: Number seven, reclaim, renovate, reinvest. Changing neighborhoods one block at a time. The best way to address community issues is through bottom-up solutions. This means that solutions should come from individuals who have experienced poverty themselves and have a deep understanding of the challenges faced by the community. Makes sense, right? Well, in this episode of the 411 Live, I talked to Kurt Owens, the pastor of You Flourish Church of Milwaukee and the founder of Bridge Builders, a neighborhood development organization. Kurt is very transparent about his personal journey from being a drug dealer to now a pastor. We lay out his mission to inspire inner city innovation and transform neighborhoods one block at a time.
7: So I think I was a resident in this community that had given up hope. Mm-hmm. I just like, man, this, this neighborhood has gone to hell in a handbasket and the best thing for me to do is to leave it. Um, and you just cast judgment. Mm -hmm. on uh, the entire neighborhood. But as I began to just go door by door, uh, knocking on doors, uh, uh, introducing myself to some of my my neighbors and finding out the stories behind um, the situation that's going on. And one one of the things that I realized, like there's 36 houses on a square block. And uh, what I realized is like, there was like 28 of those houses on the block that were people suffering just in silence, just like me. It was... The eight houses that were problematic on the block that screamed the loudest, and that's mm. all you saw. Mm-hmm. You looked down the alley, you saw the garbage, and it looked like the whole neighborhood that went to hell. But if you really zeroed in, you realize, hey, this is only like three or four houses where the garbage is at. Right. <laughs> and um, and so what we try to do is like, how do we unify the residents in the community and 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 re, and re- instill hope in them to see that like like we uh we we are the stakeholders in this community and that we can fight back if we come together and, and, and stand up and and make some of those things happen. So we've done different things like, you know, there's mobile drug deals that was happening uh, you know, in front of people's houses. The police couldn't do anything about it. Like by the time you call the police, they're gone. Like right. there's really nothing you could do. So we start putting signs out saying like mobile drug deals being recorded. Actually Something as simple as that it helped uh, nice. because when you see those signs throughout the block like people will go to the next block and, mm-hmm. and be able to do it.
2: There are some folks from your background who might be surprised at what you're doing now, right? <laughs> yeah. Because and you alluded to it uh earlier but you your life took a different path. I mean, you're a pastor now. You yeah. I think you're a PK too, I a am. pastor's kid. <laughs> but somehow things got off a off track, I guess I yeah, would
7: say. Yeah, yeah. Were you
2: a drug dealer?
7: I most certainly. <laughs> was. I most certainly was. Um, you know, I, I I think the I I, I was a, a, attracted to it uh, at very young, or at least I was attracted to the just the lifestyle. I seen people in my community. Most of the people in my community were blue collar. I'd never seen a black lawyer. I'd never seen a black doctor. I'd never seen a black white collar anything. Uh, neighborhood I grew up in, it was just all blue collar. I wasn't attracted to blue collar. Uh-huh. My dad was blue collar. I just, I just, I just, I just wasn't, and I believed that I couldn't be anything that I wanted to be in life, and so I just figured that I'm gonna have to make my own way. And it's crazy because the same year that I started college was the same year I became a drug dealer. Are you serious? <laughs> yeah. yeah, and uh, and I was going to school during the days, uh, you know, living the life of a drug dealer at night, and I became really good as being a drug dealer, and so I dropped out of college, and um, and uh, I thought life was grand at the moment, and all of a sudden, you know, I was shot at a, a number of times, I was robbed by gunpoint, wow. and probably the last time I, you know, I watched friends uh, get murdered. Uh, go to prison for a long time. And for whatever reason, like God's hand was on my life. The last time I was robbed, uh, you know, I was told to get down on my knees and I just like, I'm about to get executed. Wow! (laughs) And I just remember just saying like, I only got enough time to say, Lord, forgive me. And, and, and I did when I seen that I was still alive. I'm like, God, if you get me out of this situation, I, I promise I'll, I'll change my life. And
2: there is a poison that has and still is impacting the lives of some children in parts of Milwaukee efforts are being made to lessen the impact but there are state laws in place that prevent more from being done in number six of our top ten countdown Michael Mannon, director of environmental health with the city of Milwaukee Health Department tells me about the extent of lead in water, paint, and soil. We talk about remediation efforts and how it could be better.
8: Lead paint has been around since the 1920s. That's when it was first put into buildings. And it wasn't until 1978 that it was taken out. So if you think about the housing stock that we have and 55, 60 years worth of buildings that were built or renovated during that time with lead paint... So the scale of the problem is one issue. Um, and it's not un, it's it's not um, something that's only in Milwaukee. It, it affects every large urban city that's out there. Um, you know, our best estimates 250 plus 1000 units wow. that have lead paint. Still. Still, yeah. And, you know, I personally think that that estimate is low. I think it's higher than that because we look at units as buildings, but sometimes buildings can be apartment complexes. That's right. They can be duplexes, triplexes. Well, let me ask you this.
2: 1978 is when it's banned, mm-hmm. lead paint. But say a home was built in 1980. Could the builders have used some of this surplus paint that was kind of sitting around that had lead
8: yeah it's a possibility it's illegal yeah (laughs) but it doesn't you know how how do you how can you tell what a builder uses right yeah um so there is a potential that it could be there i mean it's lead paint is still out there Mm -hmm. um people still use it to add to any type of coating and what it does is, when you add the lead to the coating, it makes it more durable. You're adding a metal into something, I and see. it it extends the lifespan of that that coating. Yeah, that possibility exists, <clears throat> but more importantly, the lifespan of that coating you know, we're 50, 60 years, most closely more like 80 to 90 years post the time that it was painted. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's deteriorating. Yeah, and so the hazard becomes up. Apparent is when it's, it's in, in its deteriorated form, when it's becoming dust or chips. So if I've got lead paint on a wall and it's all intact, it's not a hazard. Mm-hmm. But the problems arise when you have delayed maintenance or you're not maintaining those surfaces. Um, and, you can, and it's not <clears throat> that lead paint is only in the city of Milwaukee, right? right? All of our surrounding suburbs have homes that were built pre-1978 as well. And in those homes there's lead paint as well um but what the the distinction is
2: let's take a break when we come back more of our top 10 episodes of 2023 you are listening to the 411 live real people real talk the impact of a meal goes well beyond feeding our bodies Because when people are fed, futures are nourished. Everyone deserves to live a full life. And with your help, together we can end hunger.
8: Join the movement at feedingamerica.org slash act now.
0: You are loved. You are valued. You are resilient.
8: You got this. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides at aarp.org slash caregiving.
2: Home ownership is a major step toward generational wealth. But the prices of homes make buying one almost impossible for a lot of people. And I said, almost impossible. We call 2023 top episode number five, black women working to provide affordable housing in Milwaukee. Now let me set this one up. The city of Milwaukee set aside $50 million from the Federal American Rescue Plan Act or ARP for a housing program to renovate vacant houses and turn them into affordable housing. The city called on developers, and my guests are three of six who formed a company and jumped on the opportunity. Adrian Hunter, Anita Clinton, and Jennifer Webster, a CEO, a marketing strategist, and a new real estate agent, put action to vision.
1: So these are houses that have been sitting vacant for years and we have now. a lot of those and there yeah there's quite a few it's quite a few that the city has owned they've yeah. uh, acquired these houses in different ways mm-hmm. um but they are they're distressed properties and so <laughs> they have this money this 15 million as you said and they um they put the, put out an rfp for interested developers who want to come in to help renovate these properties and then the cool thing about it is it's in neighborhoods um, that are low-income neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And so we are renovating these properties. The cities has kind of set a standard as to what type of material is going into the properties. And then there's a limit on, for the most part, how much we can sell them for. So they have to be affordable homes. Yeah. So they're made affordable. So you have individuals who may not even have considered that they can own a home. They can actually own a newly renovated property at a cost that they can actually afford. So how did this... How did you get to this place? (laughs) I guess all eyes on me
9: on that one. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Well, it really started with a Facebook post. Uh, Someone I knew posted that the city was having a info session, on Zoom. Mm -hmm. And so I saw it and I got on that call. And so afterwards, um, I got a call from the lady that posted it, the person that I knew, and she said, what did you think? I said, it was way over my head. And she said, really? I said, yeah. She said, so what are you going to do? I said, I'm going for it. She said, really? I said, yeah. And she said, "Um, you want to do it together? I said, sure. And that's how that got started. And then I noticed while I was involved in the, while I was on the Zoom, I saw Jennifer. And at that time, Jennifer was working for me. And I thought, "Uh." Oh, she doing on this call, you know, and so afterwards she called me and she said, "What did you think?" And I thought of the same thing. I said, that was way over my head. and I said, "But Alice and I are going to go for it. Alice is our other business, one of our other business."
2: Top 10 episode number four is living the sober life mentally, physically and spiritually. I have to thank my guests for being so transparent about their traumas that required a lot of healing. People with deep-seated trauma often seek out help to heal, and I applaud them for that. But even after the transformation, there may come a need for a touch-up. This episode highlights a program that provides that touch-up. My guests were Nancy Yarborough, Executive Director of Fresh Start Learning, as well as Angela Clements and Darlene Dyson. You know, the program that we're talking about where I say touch-up, uh, Living the Sober Life Phase Two. So when I look at the title of it, I think, you know, sober, I think of an addiction and sobering up from that. What are we sobering up from?
10: (laughs) (laughs) If I might answer that question. Uh, We're sobering up from the mindset. It's not so much of the drug of choice or the participatory part about addictive behavior. It's more so what do you do once you realize you have an addiction, whatever form that is, Mm -hmm. and how do you transform your mind into picking up another behavior when you leave that one behind.
2: Okay. Okay.
10: Living the sober life.
2: Right. So far, your participants, what are they sobering up from?
10: Well, the majority are kind of coming out complex um, trauma. So it's survival sex, human trafficking, drug addiction, sex addiction, relational issues, tra- trauma, past trauma. You know, um, even implosions, you know, like you criticize yourself so much that you don't realize that you're more special than you have been all the time. So it's mm. kind of that confusing part, like getting you back on the track of knowing
2: who you are and who God intended you to be. Okay. Now we're talking about phase two. I called it the touch up. But first, we need to kind of lay that foundation with phase one. Mm-hmm. What are the ladies going through in phase one?
10: Phase one, we kind of utilized my book, The Exodus Where New Beginnings Happen, and we used a topic basis like the genesis, where did it start from, where is your brokenness and how can you repair brokenness and broken behavior and the brokenness that lied in you and the cycles that you need to break and finding out all those things and then ending up with the reality of, now did I triumph over the enemy that was abiding within? So we're Mm. always directing people back to you because everywhere you go, there you are. You are truly responsible for your responsibility. So we're getting people to, again, I like that when you said square up, square up, like get in the center of what it is that's bothering you the most and take a look at it. Let's let's talk it through. Let's put some loving arms around you, uh, support and get you to understand that if God is for you, he's more than a whole world against you. Yeah. So that means in this room you have commonality and we're trying to get people to know that you're not alone. This is not an isolated incident. This happens more than you think.
2: And being comfortable. Coming in in the number three slot is The Courage to Stand Up, a 95 year olds journey from Alabama to Milwaukee. Think about some of the elders in your life. They are walking history books and when we fail to tap into their life stories we are missing so much. That's why I was so glad to chat with 95 year old William Waddleton. This man's family co-founded the self-governed black municipality of Hobson City, Alabama. And he won a lawsuit that produced significant changes in workers' rights and opportunities for people right here in Wisconsin. Just kind of starting from the beginning, okay, you were born in Anniston, Alabama, but your family co-founded a little city, a little town in Alabama, Hobson City. Alabama, Mm -hmm. And what I, as I was reading, I understand that it's Alabama's first self-governed, all-black municipality. right? And I think it was formed or incorporated in 1899.
0: 1899. Mm -hmm.
2: Tell me, how did this happen?
0: Uh, Well, before that, uh, it was like a quarter. I think it was owned by the Indians. And uh, the white people didn't want any people to live in Oxford that was adjacent city to that. And most of the black live in this area, uh, quartered area, and uh, it was no government, no, uh, there was no kind of training. And so what happened, the people decided to get together, they got more Intelligent and more educated, and they formed their own government in 1999. That's when they got the charter. Right. But, but it was named after Richard Person Hobson. Okay. He was um, army person, and they were doing the Spanish War, and uh, uh, then uh, after that, after become a corporation, and the city got their own government.
2: With drug overdoses, out-of-control homicides, death from illness and suicide, grief is all around us. In 2023's second most listened to podcast, Grief and Resilience, A Mother-Daughter Perspective, I talked to mother, Janine Hibbler, and her daughter, Sonaya about grief and resilience. And get this, Janine lost her father to cancer, her husband to a heart attack, and her son to suicide in the span of a year. Their story of how they navigate all this is amazing. First of all, let me say, um, I'm really sorry for your loss. And when I heard about this, as I was telling you earlier, it just struck me, you know? It was just like, it kind of took my breath away. Because you know, you start to imagine, because I have a father, and I have a brother, and you know, you just start to imagine those things, and what that would feel like. Of course, I could never, never, you know, really understand that, but of course you do. Um, so I wanna start with this. Now, I mentioned the three deaths. What order did it happen?
11: Well, if I could go back to even childhood, uh, I began navigating a Hurricane of hurts as a child, even younger really? than my daughter was at the time. Um, when I was in middle school, I lost my natural father. Huh. H- yes. So it, it kind of began at that that age, mm-hmm. about 11 years old, uh, beginning to deal with a lot of loss. And I lost my grandfather. And as we progressed into my adult life, I lost a brother as well. Oh, wow. um, he was 23 years old. My father died of cancer. My, my grandfather died of medical condition as well. And then my 23-year-old brother had cerebral palsy and he passed away at 23. And um, from that point, my family became accustomed to dealing with loss in a positive way, celebrating Mm. the life of those that have gone before us. Um, So obviously, fast forwarding it to the time that you're aware of, Um, in March of 2020, um, I was on a business trip and got the worst call of my life. My husband was weeping and screaming in the phone and all he could say was, Justin, Justin, Justin. He couldn't go into words about what was actually occurring. Um, so I knew it was something serious. And then I got a call from um, the local police chief in my community. Yeah, And he's like, Janina, I'm so sorry. I don't know all the details, but we're at your home. And, it, it, you know, it's pretty severe. Is there something you would like me to do for you and your family? And the only thing I could think about at that time was to get to my daughter, Sanaya, who was in school. Mm. And then I could make all the other calls on my own. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we're talking...
2: 13 when all this stuff was going on. Um, So first you you lose your brother. Mm -hmm. And while I was at school, so
4: I had no knowledge of it. I was already kind of not having the best day that day. Mm -hmm. And kind of similarly to my mom, my last exchange was with my brother is that Justin, he had came up to my room when I woke up that morning and he wished me off to school and told me to have a good day, which he did not do too often Mm -hmm. so i already knew something was a little bit off but i tried not to think too much about it but i already knew kind of what was going on mentally with my brother i had seen um, his different behaviors and things at home and so when i was at school there was a teeny tinge of worry in my heart, but I tried not to worry too much about it. I'm the type of person as well who kind of just, um, I don't want to say I bottle things up, but I put things either on the back burner or I assess those things later. Um, so when I was at school, what had happened was I was called down to the office. right. And now
2: the number one episode of the 411 Live's top 10 of 2023, and it's called Representation Matters, why teachers of color are essential for an inclusive education system. Here's an interesting statistic for you. In Milwaukee, more than 67% of the teachers are white, while more than 90% of the students are of color. Research suggests that students perform better academically and behaviorally during their school career when they are exposed to more teachers who look like them. But there are too few teachers of color. I talk about solutions with guests Anthony McHenry, CEO of Milwaukee Academy of Science, Rodney Link Jr., CEO of Milwaukee Excellence, and Jennifer Lopez, CEO at Carmen Schools of Science and Technology. I think about when I was in school, and I think of some of the teachers of color that I came came in contact with, and the first thing that pops in my head was, I think I was in the fifth or sixth grade, Mm -hmm. and my parents were getting a divorce, and I was was really going through it, Mm -hmm. and there was this black teacher who, she was a science teacher, and she pulled me out of class, and she sat me down, and she told me, I know what you're going through, and she kind of walked me through, you know, this is... this is how you're going to feel. I understand it, but we got to be focused. You know, you can't let this slip. You know, she just talked me through Mm -hmm. that. And I can think of a few teachers who did that. So I know from my experience that it made a difference, Mm -hmm. you know, because I was seeing somebody who looked like me. Mm -hmm. So I throw that to you as to what you see the impact is.
12: Yeah, well, like you, I had my own personal experience. Uh, I was just sharing with somebody recently that uh, the meanest teacher I ever had in my life (laughs) was Miss Stevenson, my fourth grade teacher. Um, But if you ask me then and if you ask me now who's my favorite teacher, it was Miss Stevenson. And when I reflect on that, I think the reason why both are true is because she was an African-American woman that was willing to push me beyond where I was comfortable going at that point. Right? Mm-hmm. She was the first person to tell me that I am smart. She was the first person to tell me that I can be whatever I chose to be. And I think that's one of the benefits for uh, our kids, um, whether they're black or brown, to see someone who looks like them, mm-hmm. not only because it allows them to dream big because they see a professional in front of them, but also the experience of having someone who is willing to push you beyond your comfort zone yeah. Yeah. because they've been likely in some of the same situations, some of the same cultural uh, norms that you have, and some of the same challenges that that those children are facing, they've already faced those, and they know that they can overcome them.
2: Right, right. Jennifer, you're in a different situation because I remember talking to you, and you had not uh, had a, a teacher that looked like you mm-hmm. until college? That's right. Wow.
13: Yeah, I went through my entire pre-K through 12 education without a Latina teacher, a Latino, Latina teacher. And uh, to me, um, it was an incredibly powerful experience. Um, I was taking a Diplomacy of World Affairs course, and it was a higher level course, and I, I asked to be and requested to be a part of that course because I had, not only were they Latino, but they were um, Salvadorian, which is my background. And um, you know, I was able to, to be in that course, and it really was transformational. I had someone that looked like me, someone that had similar experience to my own upbringing, um, someone that you really was able to get me to understand the beauty of my culture mm-hmm. and my language and my identity. Um, something that I had not t- I had taken for granted. Um, and so that is something that I want to be true for all of my students at Carmen. I want my students to be able to see themselves reflected by the individuals around them, whether that be teachers, whether that be the staff, whether that be principals. I wish for one day for a Carmen alum to take over my role as a CEO. Because I yeah. know that then, then we have, we have
2: And those are the top 10 episodes of the 411 Live in 2023. Wow. I encourage you to go to any podcast platform, including YouTube, and check out the full episodes. You know, it is an honor to highlight important topics and interesting people on this podcast. And knowing you listen and watch it on the different platforms makes it that much more worthwhile. Thank you for joining us in 2023 and continue to support us in 2024. We have so much more in store for you. I'm Beverly Taylor. This is The 411 Live, real people, real talk. God bless and be the best you in 2024. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, the411live.org.